I'm Angela Kokot sitting in for Alex Pearson. You're listening to On Point. Well, every week we check in with Tom Korski, managing editor of Black Locks Reporter. Go to blacklocks.ca. Black Locks Reporter covering news you won't find anywhere else. Good evening, Tom. Hi, Angela. Great to look at the uh, website and check out some of the stories that you won't find anywhere else. I want to start with this one because when the pandemic hit us in 2020, we knew the federal government had to act quickly in supporting businesses, employees that were impacted by lockdowns. The big question always was, where did all the money go? Did some businesses that shouldn't have received it receive it? You guys have done some digging on that, and it's pretty interesting to find out what you got. Documents tabled by the Minister of Revenue, Angela. This this was millions. Uh, uh, nearly 800 insolvent companies received a Canada emergency wage subsidies. Revenue agency wouldn't say how much, but you do a rough calculation based on their average payouts. It's tens of millions of dollars. Angela, these were failing companies. This had nothing to do with the pandemic. And the irony is Cabinet today would say, well, easy to say in hindsight 2020, but these were uh, dangerous times and we needed to act quickly. Wrong. At the time, there were people who understood small business and, and large corporations and said, there's a very easy pandemic aid program you can do for business, GST rebates. Just let them keep their GST collections. Then Finance Minister Bill Morneau was absolutely adamant that he wouldn't do it. And instead, they set up these very complicated uh, paperwork exchanges with these wage subsidies. And the result was tens of millions of borrowed dollars went to companies that were insolvent in the first place. Angela, if you put that money in a shipping container and dropped it in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, it would have no greater effect than it did except to just pile on debt. Well, and it was interesting, though, when the revenue minister was asked, "Okay, give us some details. How much exactly? Where? What companies? Uh, She kind of hid behind uh, what was it, the fact that uh, there's the privacy issue with uh, Revenue Canada? All confidential under the income tax side. Wouldn't even discuss global figures, though. To to this day, uh, here we are into year three. Everyone knows about uh, the COVID year three. There's still never been a really serious audit of how much money was spent that didn't have to be spent that we could use today for diabetes pumps. It's gone. How much money was borrowed and spent that could have been better directed at people who really needed the help instead of insolvent companies that were going to fail anyway? Do you have an idea or did that report come out with an idea of which companies were helped because they're, yeah, you're talking about insolvent companies, but even there was the question of larger companies, uh, privately uh, traded companies. Did the the little guy get uh, his or her fair share? The the implication, there was one oddity, a disproportionately high number were in Quebec. Doesn't make any Mm -hmm. sense. Uh, I, I know, I know. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I'm was, snickering, yes. <laughs> I know. There, there was also, this made sense, a large number of um, restaurateurs and contractors. Now, that covers the waterfront, Angela. You could have restaurant chains and very expensive, uh, costly, very large contractors, or you could have the smallest mom-and-pop shops. There's just a, simply a dearth of detail. Either way, that's money we're not getting back. Wow. So they're not doing any follow-up or saying, okay, we'll track down. Well, I guess if the company was insolvent, it's going to be hard to get blood from a stone. 
Yeah, but I mean, we could at least have an audit so it never happens again. Yeah. And the, the sad part is they were warned. They were told at the time, don't do this. If you want to help them out, just refund. And Morneau was not going to do it. Bill, you know, there's a mythology in auto, Angela. If you're a finance minister, you have above average intelligence. I have to tell you that is not the case. That is a myth. Tom Korski is my guest this evening. He's the managing editor of Black Locks Reporter. You can go to blacklocks.ca. You're listening to On Point. I want to get to another story. Uh, and of course, it comes out of yesterday's deal between the Liberals and the NDP. And Jagmeet Singh saying this is the way, if he can support the uh, government on financial confidence votes, then he will eventually see the NDP's priorities of Danticare, Pharmacare. There's always been the question of, okay, how much is this going to cost? You've got a better idea of what the program will cost, who is going to be um, impacted by it or will benefit from it. Give us those details. Yeah, Danticare, uh, Angela, is the most detailed part of that vote swap agreement between the New Democrats and the Liberals. Essentially, it says by 2025, if, if it lasts, by 2025, free dentistry, if you have a household income of $70,000 or less, if you make between 70 and 90,000 per household, then you will pay co-payments, user fees, that will become increasingly evident so that by the time you hit 89999 there's no more free dentistry. What's the cost? Well, the Parliamentary Budget Office said when they analyzed an identical program proposed in a, in a private New Democrat bill two years ago, said it's about $4.6 billion in the first year, almost $5 billion, and then about a billion and a half on a rolling basis and year after year after that. It's not an inexpensive program. Yeah, I guess that's not a surprise for sure. I, I want to go back to your comment. If it lasts, you're saying if the actual deal lasts between the Liberals and the NDP until 2025? That's a long time, Angela. Mm-hmm. Three years is a long time. And, you know, the, the the deal basically codifies an understanding that New Democrats had with Liberals from 2019. Well, that didn't even last two years because the prime minister thought he could win a majority. That's the problem. Like, uh, Mr. Singh calls it a marriage, a political marriage, a very convenient marriage that can can dissolve at any moment. The other thing is the NDP has really tied itself to a cabinet that is as popular as you would expect a cabinet that's been around for seven years to be. And that cuts both ways. Mm. And they have, it appears, everything to lose and nothing to gain. If they even get a Dedicare program, who do you think is going to be taking the credit for it? Yeah, yeah. Why can't we call it a dental care program? Why, why do we have to short things down to Dentacare? But anyway, that's another topic. Hey, give me an idea, though. <laughs> give me an idea of the budget office uh, estimating how many, when you talk about the, the level of income family households have to have to qualify for it, what are we looking at for Canadians who will really benefit from the program? They estimate six and a half million, uh, and that includes multifamily households. Mm. Uh, it, it is most Canadians. It is a fact. Uh, either have uh, well, they have uh, some of them aren't great plans. Yeah. But they have dental plans through their employer. Vast majority, about twelve million have none, and of those, uh, about half make too much money 
to qualify for free dentistry under the program. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's my concern. I, I wish we could target. Yes, you, we are through the fact that only 70000 and under will qualify. And then after that, as you mentioned, there'll be some user fees. But I just feel like there might be a, a different way of targeting those families that really need it. I want to squeeze in one more here because... Throughout the pandemic, when we heard of companies mandating vaccinations and telling employees that if they're not vaccinated, they can't show up for work, a lot of them have been tested in court. Uh, I want to talk about uh, Coca-Cola. What was the uh, argument decision there when it came to their employees and vaccinations? Biggest uh, Coke bottling plant in the whole country in Brampton, Ontario, about 700 employees. About a third uh, came uh, tested positive for COVID. Uh, That included some vaccinated employees. About 75% of employees at this bottling plant, huge plant, were vaccinated. Coca-Cola came in and said, you know what? Uh, If you can't show proof of vaccination, you could be suspended without pay, could be fired. Went to an arbitrator, the uh, Unifor local uh, said, this is not only a breach of our collective Mm -hmm. agreement, it's completely unreasonable. People who will not disclose their vaccination status obviously have strong feelings about it. You want to start taking away their pay or their job. That's a little bit rough. And the arbitrator in the case said it is rough, but it is a public health emergency. Problem is, it's the location. It's a bottling plant. You are working cheek by jowl, as anyone who's worked on a factory floor knows. But it's interesting, Angela, there's really been no federal court decision to this date on whether vax mandates are constitutional. And we know, ironically, lawyers of all people in the Department of Health in a 1996 report said vaccine mandates are unconstitutional. We can't have them in Canada. And yet, as you say, there's been no decision or um, even a a court battle at that level to come out with a decision? No, because the the VAX mandates move too quickly. I mean, court proceedings just cannot respond in real time to this. So you get union challenges or attempts at injunctions by, uh, in the case of federal employees, 1,100 that we know of were suspended without pay for either not being vaccinated or saying, you know what, under the Privacy Act, my medical status is none of your business. Hmm. Well, again, a lot of when this was rolling out, a lot of companies and employees were going head to head saying, you can't make me do this. And as I say, I I thought it would be an interesting decision to share on Coca-Cola. And even back to the working conditions, you're right there. They're cheek to jowl. We have meat packing plants where a similar situation when you're on the cutting room floor and the efforts to put plexiglass and everything else. But at some point, you can't even do that. You're just so close together, I guess. That's the concern. That was the issue. And conversely, in the case of the Freedom Convoy, uh, and and their organizers said, and plausibly, where is the medical science that says if I'm alone in the cab of a truck for eight hours a day, I have to be vaccinated? There, there is none. There, there is no medical evidence for that. It gets really complicated, doesn't it, Angela? Yeah. And, you know, there, the, the problem is I think we're going to get our answers. And some of the answers I think will say that it is not uh, justifiable in all cases to force someone as a condition of employment or accommodation to show proof of vaccination. But it's going to be for the history books. You're going to get those a year, two years from now. Well, and history books, but we try to learn from history. So they say we'll probably be hit with another pandemic down the road. We'll learn how to do things maybe a little bit differently. Tom, I really appreciate your uh, time tonight. Thanks, Angela. 
Tom Korski, Managing Editor of Black Locks Reporter. Go to blacklocks.ca. I'm Angela Kokod, in for Alex Pearson. You're listening to On Point.